1: this is Sharon Pierce
0: And Jeremy Stanley
1: And it's time to wake up We are so excited today We have Julia Harris with us Julia is a CRNA from California And I've had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know her Through some friends that we share together, Julia And that would be Doug Ramey, Aloha <laughs> And Candy Smith we all got to spend some time together in Amsterdam this past June before we went to the IFNA meeting. And we'll have to tell you about the houseboat that I rented on Uh-oh. another opportunity. <laughs> but I got the opportunity to hear Julia at the Hawaii state meeting. Yes, we both spoke at the Hawaii state meeting. Somebody's got to do it. So it might oh, as well wow. be we us. we say
0: free trips here? Yeah.
1: Oh. But it was it was awful but the good thing about it was that i got to hear julia speak on non opioid anesthesia did i say that right or opioid free anesthesia yes. same thing yes. i suppose but i heard her informative lecture obviously i just missed the title piece of it but I thought that maybe all of us could benefit from her expertise.
0: Yeah, Sharon, I think that's great. You know, I guess, Julia, coming from a non-CRNA perspective, why don't you um, just kind of paint the picture for me? I know a lot of our listenership, probably the majority is CRNAs, but what exactly is opioid-free anesthesia? You know, I, I hear all this stuff in the news about opioids and, you know, the negativity side. But what is opioid-free anesthesia? Well,
2: that's a great question, a very poignant one. And to be honest, uh, we have had multiple conversations within the community about how we should define it. Because to define it, opioid-free anesthesia is a little bit of a misnomer because the way that we approach anesthesia has very little to do with opioids in that we use everything except that. And we do that for very specific reasons, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But opioid-free anesthesia is a newer technique of anesthesia administration. We don't use opioids during the main anesthetic. We use other medications to maintain stable hemodynamics and to prevent pain from even starting so that they have better pain control afterwards. It has very specific targets within the body. It has multiple targets. We have many medications that we can use, which end up giving the patient a much better experience during their surgery and immediately post-off period. They require less anesthetics. They're more comfortable. They have less side effects. So we're really excited about this new perspective and this change to anesthesia practice. So what
1: patients are... Is there a certain subgroup of patients that are a better group to use this type of anesthesia with, Julia?
2: Absolutely. Um, And the first thing that comes to mind is the obesity epidemic in the United States. I just heard a statistic that over 50% of Americans are overweight. And of course, as you know, that's linked very closely with obstructive sleep apnea. So giving opiates tend to cause respiratory depression it can cause obstruction when patients that are sleepy are trying to breathe and that makes us need to keep a closer eye on them and it puts them at risk of having greater postoperative complications the other patient populations are patients that already have pain syndromes they're already taking a lot of opiates for other reasons that they're having pain and to try to control their pain, their new pain from surgery with additional opiates is really just you know, throwing a cup of water into a bucket with holes in it. I mean, you really cannot control their pain very well using the same medications they're already taking at home. And then there's patients that have actually gone into recovery from addiction, various addictions, and, and they don't want to be exposed to opiates. So, so this is a great um, way of providing anesthesia for them. And of course, you know, we very commonly have patients that tell us that they've had nausea and vomiting after surgery and they don't want the same experience. Well, this is great because one of the main culprits, obviously, for post-op nausea and vomiting is opiates. So if you can avoid giving those medications, those patients end up doing very well. And in fact, on a recent audit that I did for my patients that have received opiate-free anesthesia in the last year or so, I couldn't find one patient that had an incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting. And then, of course, people that are elderly and are susceptible to having cognitive dysfunction afterwards, this type of anesthesia is very good for them. And certain considerations should be given to patients undergoing cancer surgery because we are finding that giving opiates actually decrease the immune system. And some studies have found that there is a greater incidence of cancer reoccurrence or malignancy after cancer surgery when opiates have been used during that that procedure. So there are definitely some specific patient populations that benefit more from this type of anesthesia. That's
1: interesting that you talk about cognitive dysfunction, Julia. I think you and I had this discussion after my father had his surgery. And I truly never appreciated the cognitive dysfunction in the elderly. And even though my dad was only what, 76 when he had his surgery, to me, that's not really elderly. And with your 102-year-old grandmother that you take <laughs> care of, 76 is a spring chicken next to her. But it was really interesting that my father was having hallucinations. He was seeing, mm. I mean, he's fully alert, but he's seeing yeah. deer running across the front lawn of the hospital and different things like that. So I truly never appreciated that whole piece until it came home to roost, so to speak.
0: Absolutely. Well, Julia, you know, you've talked about better post-op results and so forth. I guess one of my questions as a layperson in this industry would be, you know, how do the patients fare from a non-opioid anesthetic? And I'm sure you do patient satisfaction surveys. And what are you finding when you do those surveys?
2: I find that they do very well. In fact, I couldn't even find one incidence of post-operative nausea and vomiting in the patient population that I had provided opioid-free anesthesia to. An additional thing, that I had been keeping track of and monitoring were our total joint replacements, specifically our total knee replacements. So I had worked with the uh, orthopedic surgeon to kind of come up with an idea that what we can do to get our patients home sooner, have them recover faster, have them meet their physical therapy goals, have them more comfortable and be able to be discharged sooner. And so we came up with a concoction and we One of the main pieces of that is the opioid-free anesthesia. And by implementing those protocols, we are able to get our patients home one day sooner. So 0.81, technically, days home sooner, which translates into a cost savings of over $3,400 per day for a for-profit hospital in California, which is the type of hospital that, that mine is. So when you multiply that by... However, many patients you did. And so in our case, it was 29 patients that we had used opiate free anesthesia on for total knee replacements. That cost savings translates to over $85,000 for my hospital. So not only are you doing well for your patients, but you also become an asset to your institution because most hospitals get reimbursed for total joints as a bundle fee. So they get paid one set of money no matter how long the the patient stays in the hospital. So they say one day you get paid the same. If they spend three days and then go to a nursing home, you only get paid that same amount of money. So if you can get that patient home a day sooner, every day that you can get them home sooner is a significant cost saving to your hospital. So it's good for your patients.
1: Well, that'll sure help when you go to management for a raise, won't it, Julia?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It's good job security.
1: Well, let's talk about the opioid epidemic in the United States right now. It's in the news every single day. Jackie Rolls and I have talked about this on several occasions, and I'm not too sure that we've not been participatory in some way, shape, or form. And When I say we, I don't necessarily mean CRNAs, but the healthcare system, JCO came up with the fifth vital sign. and. Hospital PR. It's going out telling people, come to our hospital. You'll not have any pain. But I would challenge you to think that if you come in and you have abdominal surgery, have your abdomen cut open, I think you might be in some pain. But we've given these expectations to patients that you are not going to be in pain. So I think that in some way has been contributory to part of this opioid epidemic. And so I'd like to hear some of your thoughts on that, Julia.
2: Well, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And as we're finding, this opioid epidemic has been caused by multiple factors. And certainly the ones that you have mentioned have contributed to this crisis that our country is facing. And again, you can't turn on the news without hearing about it. You know, over 64,000 people died in 2016 alone, which is more than the people that died in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, wars combined. 122 people die every single day from this crisis. And to think that we might be contributing to that is just heart-wrenching. So what can we do to maybe help at least prevent that from happening? So we do know for a fact that after surgery, patients are at risk for developing chronic pain. In fact, one in 10 surgical patients go on to develop chronic pain after surgery, and one in every hundred go on to develop absolutely intolerable chronic pain afterwards. And also 10% of surgical patients develop opioid dependence, unfortunately, and there's definitely a link between people that have chronic pain and people that develop opioid dependence, it's unfortunate. And a recent study that came out from Stanford in 2016 verified that surgical patients are at risk from becoming chronic opioid users. So there is definitely a link between administering anesthesia and undergoing surgery and the development of chronic pain.
0: Hey, Julia, do you know what percentage of procedures right now in the U.S. are utilizing opioid-free anesthesia? I mean, is there statistics on that?
2: I don't know. No, that is a wonderful question. I do know that it's kind of taking off rapidly in Europe. Last year, I went to a conference in Burr, Belgium, by Jan Mueller, and there were people from all over Europe attending that conference, and they are about two years ahead of us in this movement. And they don't have the opioid epidemic there. They're just doing it because it's a better way to provide anesthesia. Their patients are doing much, much better. Because one of the main things that we do by delivering this opioid anesthesia, it's not just general anesthesia minus Pain control or minus opiates. It's much more than that. Our main focus on delivering anesthesia is to do it in such a way that it blocks pain from even starting, that we block inflammatory markers such as prostaglandins, cytokinins, glutamate, all those pro-inflammatory mediators. We're trying to stop them. We're trying to suppress them. And by doing that, our patients have much, much better pain control afterwards. And as you can see from a lot of the ERAS data, the patients do a lot better. Now, opioid-free doesn't equal enhanced recovery after surgery, those kind of very inclusive protocols, but it's a key component in it. And just doing the opioid-free anesthesia alone does our patients a lot of good. But as far as tracking actual numbers, no, we don't have that data, although hopefully in the not-too-distant future we'll be able to keep track of that. I, I do think that we need to do robust studies to track our patients and to track the use of opioid-free anesthesia and, and what the outcome differences are. Because clinically I see them. I know our patients do well. I talked to surgeons afterwards and our ACL patients are, you know, up running around to the point where my surgeon has to tell them to calm down and actually take it easy and don't overuse. So they're doing really, really well, but we need to quantify that. We haven't got to the point where where we're doing that. Julia, you and I
1: both know that CRNAs do not like change. As I've said many times before, if you even move the ephedrine syringe on our plus cart, we lose our minds. So what would you like to say to CRNAs who say, well, I've been giving anesthesia like this for 30 years and it's worked just fine. Why would I want to do something like this?
2: It's a really incredible point, and I couldn't agree with you more about uh, it being difficult to change. There, there are some people that are what are termed early adapters, and those people are more open to new ideas. They tend to be, you know, read the newest literature coming out. They tend to go to conferences and try new things. So those people are fewer and far between. So the rest of the population, i.e., eighty percent of us, you know, the people out there, are resistant to change. You know, they really are. but the more evidence that's out there, the more compelling the data is to make these changes, to do them for the sake of our patients. I mean, look at how many things that we used to do back in the day that we now look back on and think, why did we do that? I mean, when I used to work in the surgical intensive care unit at LA County, the number one penetrating trauma center in the United States at the time, I mean, we would transfuse our patients to a hemoglobin of 10 you know, we would give them 20 liters of IV fluid, crystalloid overnight to keep their blood pressure stable. We would throw in central lines and swan ganz catheters. And then, you know, in the subsequent days, if they made it, you know, they obviously went into arts because we transfused a bunch of, you know, blood products where, you know, they're, have anasarca because of all the fluids that we pumped into them, they're acidotic because of the fluids we pumped into them. They got, you know, almost indefinitely developed sepsis afterwards from the central lines we were placing. All those things that we we really thought we were doing the best things for our patients at the time, but they they turned out to cause harm to our patients now that we have more information. And I would argue that this push for opioid-free anesthesia is going to be one of those things. We're going to look back in a few years and wonder how we ever did it this way. You know, why opiates were the mainstay, why we went for those medications first when there's other medications available that can control the patient's pain and can stabilize vital signs without causing all these negative side effects. So, you know, the time is changing.
0: Julia, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, you're getting better results. There's cost savings. Patients are, are satisfied. And to me, you know, I'm not sure this sounds almost like an education lesson for providers and in, in change and what this opioid free anesthesia can do for their patients, the cost savings and everything along with. It. Is that and I know that the the Society the opioid free anesthesia, which I think you've also spoken at and Larry Hornsby's a part of, you know, and I think they're trying to educate as well, but is this more of an education lesson for providers?
2: Well, absolutely. We've been providing anesthesia with opiates to treat what we think of our patients to have pain since the 1960s. And that's a long, hard habit to break, right? But we're not still using pentothal, right? And pentothal was a mainstay drug at the time. Oh, I love pentothal. I do miss <laughs> pentothal. <laughs> no, we're not. So why are we still using opiates? You know, I, 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 I don't understand. But the it is it is a knowledge thing. I, I think patient once people understand the benefits of using other drugs to maintain hevanidamics while patients are under anesthesia and what other medications we can use to suppress a sympathetic response which actually ends up reducing cortisol levels afterwards as compared to the traditional or opiate based anesthetics, people We'll see that and they they will come along. I think it is a matter of education and understanding what really is good for for our patients. I mean, you look at the 1960s, the way when opiates first came about and, you know, what kind of drugs they have. They had a lot of drugs in the 60s. Uh, Uh,
1: Most most people don't
0: remember those drugs, though, do they?
2: <laughs> no, 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 we're not going there, Sharon. Sorry, no. <laughs> talking about anesthesia medications. All right, so we had barbiturates and like n Florida. You are from California now. I am. I am. I'm a nerd though. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but the other thing was, they, they were undiagnosed, you know, patients were undiagnosed for, you know, things like coronary artery disease and undiagnosed and untreated. So when, opiates first came on the scene, they were great for those patients, right? So they provided decreased cardiac output, increased SVR, you know, the vital signs were really stable, the lactate production was lower. Um, so it was really good for those patients when, because they didn't know who those patients were, right? So it quickly and easily suppressed the sympathetic system, which resulted in better outcomes. However, You know, we do have better medications now that can do the same thing without all the um, negative side effects. So now is the time to change, absolutely. But you know, and the other thing we need to think about is pain, what pain is. So by very definition, pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual potential tissue damage, or described in terms of such damage. I mean, in a textbook, you open it up, you look up pain, and that's what the definition is, right? So another definition, though, is nociception, which is the process of detecting and signaling the presence of noxious stimuli of tissue damage. So now when patients are under anesthesia, are they they having an emotional response?
1: While they're asleep?
2: Yeah, exactly. Something to think about, right? So if they're not having an emotional response, are they, by definition, having pain? So maybe a more appropriate definition is nociception. So if we're using opiates to control what we think of our patients having pain, maybe we don't need to do that, right? Maybe we need to control the sympathetic response of nociception, right, rather than using opiates to treat as an analgesic during anesthesia.
1: If a tree falls in a woods kind of thing, you know. I,
2: <laughs> exactly. I, I hear
1: you. exactly. I hear you. Well, on a, another note, I want to ask something. You said that you were just at a big sofa meeting and I was just wondering, does this have implications for military? I mean, we know that a lot of military people become addicted to opioids afterwards. Do you know if this is catching on in that particular arena whenever CRNAs are administering anesthesia for
2: military personnel that have been injured? I have not heard of that happening. However, I will say that I have trained in military facilities and they are very pro-regional anesthesia. If you want somebody to do good regional anesthesia, find somebody who's been in the military and they will be your person, right? So so perhaps, even if they don't have, they haven't been using all the other drugs that we use in opiate-free anesthesia, they have in all likelihood been able to spare a lot of the opiate administration by doing peripheral nerve blocks. And the newest development is fascial plane blocks. And my God, that field has absolutely exploded to the point it has. So there's a block for anything, any surgery that you can think of, there's a block for it now. And that is a very new development and very much a game changer for controlling postoperative pain and minimizing the need for opiates.
1: Well, doesn't regional anesthesia function along kind of the same premise that you're ligating the pain response, it never reaches, that pain response never reaches the brain? And that's what regional does too. So it's kind of tangential, I know, but interesting concept.
2: Sure. Right. So regional anesthesia, for those of you that are not anesthesia providers, it's a it is a specific procedure where you can numb up certain body parts. So if you're having shoulder surgery, you can do what we call an scaling block. And we can put numbing medication or local anesthetic around the brachial plexus. And what that does is it numbs your arm from your fingertips all the way up to your shoulder. So if you've had shoulder surgery, when you wake up from anesthesia, your shoulder is going to be numb. It's not going to be hurting. So it does block the pain transmission by putting the numbing medication on the nerves that normally transmit the pain signals to the brain. Absolutely. But it is a very, very good tool for opiate free anesthesia.
0: Well, Julia, this is um, fascinating stuff, even to a, a lay person like me. It's interesting, as you know, I read about you know, the government talking about suing big pharma over this epidemic and so forth. There's a lot to this. And I know you've just kind of breached the surface here with this, but, you know, we don't want to take up too much of your time. So just any final thoughts that you might have for our listenership to maybe um, talk to CRNAs out there who haven't thought about this, get them involved with, you know, organizations such as SOFA, anything that you'd like to get across to our listenership.
2: Oh my goodness, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I I would just say look it up, look what's out there. There's a lot of information out there. Jan Mueller has multiple PowerPoints available online, multiple articles. I mean, once you understand the premise of opioid-free anesthesia, in that it really it blocks pain before it even starts, it targets multiple receptors, it works on Various areas within the body to blunt pain, to stop pain before it starts. Unlike opiates, which basically you're chasing your tail a little bit, right? Because the main reason that we don't want to use opiates is that because it causes hyperalgesia afterwards. So, what that means is if you are giving pain medication to a patient under anesthesia, as in our case, after surgery, when they're awake and when that pain medication is gone, their experience of pain is actually much greater than it would have been had you used something else to control their pain. That's the main reason, one of the very main reasons we don't want to use opiates during surgery is because patients' pain ends up getting worse. And the other really negative thing about using opiates is that tolerance also develops almost immediately. So the same amount of medication you were giving that person to uh, blunt a particular stimulus Once you have to give it again, you have to give a higher dose. So it's a very cruel thing, really. I mean, you're giving medications to help try to control the pain of your patients, but what ends up happening is they end up having more pain and they need more pain medication to get to the same place they were before. So there's other medications to use. And there's lots of literature out there to support the use of opiate-free anesthesia, and I would just encourage you to look it up. There's a lot of resources. SOFA has a the webpage, go opioidfree.com So look that up. Tom will be happy to have you peruse his websites. And more and more, as you look at the different um, conferences available to you, you will see tracks on opioid free anesthesia, opiate-sparing anesthesia in those lectures. So go to them, learn more about it, and try it. I know it's a little scary at first to consider changing your practice, but it's worth it. Your patients will appreciate you doing that for them well we appreciate you
1: joining us here today julia we both learned a whole lot Uh, too bad you're not in the studio with us right now because there have been certain points and we're both just our (laughs) eyeballs are huge looking at each other so you have definitely enlightened us and i'm sure you have enlightened many people who will listen to this so we just want to give you a big thanks for joining us today and we're going to go ahead and sign off in this This is Sharon Pierce and
0: Jeremy Stanley.
1: And thanks for joining us.
0: Coming up on a future episode of Beyond the Mask. Hi, I'm Chris Betton. I'm the Senior Director of PR for the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Mark your calendars for January 20 through 26 to celebrate National CRNA Week 2019. Communications Committee Chairman Dan Lovinari and I will help you guys get ready with all of the preparations you need for the big event. So look forward to talking to you. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts.